want to take you on a little tour around the globe. You may have been to some of these places, so it won't be too shocking to you if you have. For some of the rest of you, you've never been there, so maybe this will be a little bit of an eye-opening experience for you. We're going to stop first and foremost in New York City, right at Ground Zero. A lot of you know exactly what I'm talking about. This generation is very familiar with that term, Ground Zero. 9-11 changed our world, literally changed our world. Terrorists flew planes into the World Trade Center. Those buildings collapsed. Nearly 3,000 people lost their lives. Firefighters, innocent individuals, passengers on that airplane still, innocent individuals. Towers came down and people all through New York City felt the rumble of it. Today there's a memorial that sits right at the base of where the towers were at. People are traveling from all over the world, literally all over the world, to go and see that memorial. It's a very solemn place, very somber for those that lived through it. Brings about a lot of sadness in the hearts of the American people. We hadn't experienced anything like that for 60 years. There's a memorial that commemorates that spot as well. Danny was talking some about these spots earlier. That memorial sits over the USS Arizona in Pearl Harbor. 1941, our country was attacked 2,400 people, soldiers, lost their lives. Sailors lost their lives at Pearl Harbor. If I understand right, that memorial is the most visited spot in all of Hawaii. Imagine that. You're going to a place that some refer to as paradise, and the spot that people want to see more than anywhere else is right there over that memorial. Tina and I have been there. We took our kids there. We wanted them to see it as well. You take a ferry out to the the memorial itself, and you get off that ferrier, and you look down on that ship where it sunk, some of it still sticking up out of the water. Then you step back into the memorial, and there's the names of all of the sailors that were killed on the Arizona and the surrounding area. It is very, very somber. There's another spot in the world. Let's take a a trip across the ocean again. We'll go to Normandy, D-Day, also in, in the 40s. Tough place for the American soldier. Tough place for the Allied forces. Tough place even for the Germans. I learned this past, this, this past week. Maybe I'd heard it before, but boy, it resonated in my mind. Did you know that at best estimate, 425,000 people died on D-Day? German soldiers and Allied forces. There are crosses all over Normandy. People are still traveling there, and, and once they get there, there's that same attitude of somberness that sets over those people. They look at the carnage that happened, the needless deaths that took place as a result of everything that was going on in World War II. That's a tough spot. It's the same thing that happens at Little Bighorn for United States soldiers. Same thing that happens at Wounded Knee for American Indians. Those are geographical spots that cause all kinds of different emotions to well up inside of people. Those are spots that even those that were never touched by it still find those same emotions when we travel there. You're standing on hallowed ground. Not holy, but hallowed ground. It's a tough place to be. Do you have spots like that in your own life? Geographical areas that when you go there, it it causes immense sadness within you? For some, that's a cemetery. You buried loved ones there. For others, it might be a house that never became a home. You grew up in this house, but there's nothing but horrible memories attached to that place. And when you drive past it, all of those memories come back. For some, it it might be a, a place that you had worked and lost your job, and 
there's horrible memories attached to that for you as well, and, and those emotions just well up inside of you the moment you go there. Now, there are other spots that are not geographical that cause that same type of thing. They're deep within us, in our hearts and our minds and even in our souls. They're places that if we allow ourselves to go there, we'll find our, ourselves battling against great sadness. We'll find ourselves at times shedding tears just because we let our minds go there. We let our hearts go there. For a lot of people, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's a place that you try to avoid. It's a thought pattern that you try to avoid. It's an emotional spot that you'll do everything you can possibly do to get away from it. It's a tough place. If you haven't been there, maybe you have loved ones that have. Reflected very well by this letter that was written by a a sister to a pastor. Take a look at this. She says, Dear Pastor, my brother won't get off the couch. He lost his job and seemingly his will to live. She goes on in the letter to say, what, what do I do to help him? How do I help him get off of the couch? Also in that letter, she would say, this is not the first time that he has battled against oppression. This is at least the third. A lot of you know exactly what this is like. Things happen in your life where everything gets turned upside down and the next thing you know, you find yourself on the couch, unable to move. You've lost your will to live. You've lost all of your drive. The couch itself becomes a memorial to exactly where you're at in life. You don't know how to get off of it. You don't know how to help other people get off of it. It's a tough place with difficult emotions attached to it. This lady would say to the pastor, how do I help my brother? It's a good question. A lot of people have asked that. How do I help my brother? How do I help my sister? How do I help my husband? How do I help my wife? How do we help our children? How do we help our friends? They're in a bad place. We don't know what to do. Well, doctors don't always have the answer. Pastors don't always have the answer. Counselors don't always have the answer. The Bible does. And if we will open it, We can find how to help people in situations just like this. This may sound strange to you if you've never studied anything like this before, but what I would suggest is that you take those folks or you go there yourself to a place called Bochum. Let me show it to you in the Bible. This is in the Old Testament, the book of Judges, chapter 2, verse 1. Hopefully you brought a Bible with you. Judges chapter 2, verse 1. This expression, this term, name, title, whatever you want to call it, only shows up one time in the Bible. This is it. So the odds are you've never really studied it out. But there's a great deal of spiritual significance and wonderful biblical teaching that's attached to it. Judges chapter 2, verse 1. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum and said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land that I swore to give to your forefathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? Now therefore I tell you that I will not drive them out before you. They will be thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a snare to you. When the angel of the Lord had spoken these things to all the Israelites, the people wept aloud, and they called that place Bochum. There they offered sacrifices to the Lord. Now you have to understand a little bit of the backstory for this to make sense. 
When Joshua led the children of Israel into the promised land, remember Moses had died, Joshua became the leader of the Israelite people. He was to lead them into the promised land. He led them with this command from God. They were to drive out all of the foreigners, and they were to destroy any evidence of the false gods that had been there. They were to tear down the high places. They were to destroy their sanctuaries. They were to get rid of all evidence, but they didn't do it. And that's part of the reason that the Israelites suffered and struggled for as long as they did, hundreds and hundreds of years. They went through the same cycle of struggles and victory and struggles and victory and struggles and victory, all because they did not do what God told them to do. Now, I want you to see how it plays out, because there are specific reasons that they didn't accomplish all that God had put in front of them. We're going to go back one chapter to Judges chapter 1. And I'm going to take you through a little bit of this history. It may seem somewhat boring to you as we read this, but you stay with me. It is very significant. Judges chapter 1, starting in verse 1. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, Who will be the first to go up and fight for us against the Canaanites? The Lord answered, Judah is to go. I have given the land into their hands. Then the men of Judah said to the Simeonites, their brothers, Come up with us into the territory allotted to us to fight against the Canaanites. We in turn will go with you into yours. So the Simeonites went with them. When Judah attacked, the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hands, and they struck down 10,000 men at Bezek. It was there that they found Adonai Bezek and fought against him, putting to rout the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they chased him and caught him, and I really like this part, and cut off his thumbs and big toes. Then Adonai, who groaned? Was that you, Donna? Somebody groaned. No, that's just good stuff. Then Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off have picked up scraps under my table. Now God has paid me back for what I did to them. They brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. The men of Judah attacked Jerusalem also and took it. They put the city to the sword and set it on fire. After that, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites living in the hill country, the Negev, and the western foothills. They advanced against the Canaanites living in Hebron, formerly called Kiriath Arba, and defeated Shishai, Ahiman, and Talmai. From there, they advanced against the people living in Deber, formerly called Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, I will give my daughter Aksa in marriage to the man who attacks and captures Kiriath Sefer. Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, took it. So Caleb gave his daughter Aksa to him in marriage. One day when she came to Othniel, she urged him to, take, to ask her father for a field. When she got off her donkey, Caleb asked her, what can I do for you? She replied, do me a special favor. Since you have given me land in the Negev, give me also springs of water. Then Caleb gave her the upper and lower springs. The descendants of Moses' father-in-law, the Kenite, went up from the city of Palms with the men of Judah to live among the people of the desert of Judah in the Negev near Arad. Then the men of Judah went with the Simeonites, their brothers, and attacked the Canaanites living in Zephah, and they totally destroyed the city. Therefore, it was called Hormah. The men of Judah also took Gaza, Ashkelon, and Ekron, each city with its territory. The Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country. But they were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had iron chariots. As Moses had promised, Hebron was given to Caleb, who drove from it the three sons of Anak. The Benjamites, however, failed to dislodge the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. To this day, the Jebusites live there with the Benjamites. Skip down to verse 27 with me. 
But Manasseh did not drive out the people from Bethshan or Tanakh or Dor or Ibliam or Megiddo and their surrounding settlements. Listen to this. For the Canaanites were determined to live in the land. When Israel became strong, they pressed the Canaanites into forced labor, but never drove them out completely. Isn't that interesting? There's the distinct reasons why they did not take the whole of the land. Two reasons. Because they faced enemies with iron chariots. And because they faced enemies that were determined to remain in the land. That's the two reasons that the Bible lays out that the Israelites didn't do what God told them to do. Two simple reasons. Iron chariots and the determination of the enemies. Now that should have never come into play. Because prior to this point, when they entered the promised land, God took care of all of their enemies. God had always gone before them. All they had to do was do exactly what God told them to. All they had to do was be faithful. That's it. God would take care of everything else for them all the way through. That was their history. That's everything that they had to rely on. God's already won this battle. We're already victorious. Let's just be obedient. But then they see some iron chariots. And they think, we can't beat them. We don't have iron chariots. We don't have the strength. We don't have the power. Therefore, we can't go up against them. They surrendered. They threw their hands up, and they surrendered. And then they found enemies in the land that were determined to remain there. They were just determined to hold on to their home. And instead of the Israelites driving them out, instead of the Hebrew people saying, God told us this is our land and you've got to leave, they threw their hands up and said, hey, let's make a covenant together. You can live here and we can live here. We surrender because you're determined. Have you ever faced iron chariots? Have you ever come up against an iron chariot in your life? Where you looked at it and you just thought, that's just too much. We can't handle that. And you surrendered? The church has. Let me illustrate this for you. Over the last 40 to 50, maybe even 60 years, the church as a whole, I don't mean Libby Christian Church, I mean the church as a whole, has faced a lot of iron chariots. Political correctness, the threat of the government, and sometimes even the urban legend and the the myths of threats from the government that if anybody in a church ever stands up and says something political or or were to stand up and say something against the government, then our tax-exempt status would be lifted and we would no longer be able to, to have that wonderful benefit. So this iron chariot got in front of the church and the church said, well, there are certain things we can't say. There are certain things that we can't talk about. And from there, a whole bunch of other iron chariots began to crop up. And the church just surrendered because the church as a whole said, that's too big for us. Tina and I have some friends that serve in churches in California. We were with them just over a year ago and listened as they shared heartbreaking stories with us about iron chariots that they have faced. Are you ready for this? They can't even discuss in the inner cities of Los Angeles, they can't even discuss abortion and how that breaks the heart of God. They can't talk about it because of the number of people that have had abortions. They've had to draw a big circle around it and say that's off limits. It's an iron chariot. They can't talk about God's design for marriage. They sat with us at the table and said, we can't talk about marriage being between one man and one woman because in our society, in our culture, there is no way that we could get past all the people that don't agree with us. That became an iron chariot. They can't talk about homosexuality and how God sees it. They would say to us, and this is their exact quote, we settled that 20 years ago and the church has to be silent on it. That's an iron chariot. No matter what God says, the church said, we can't do anything about this. 
Instead, 40, 50, 60 years ago, the church bought into a, a philosophy called epistemological plurality. Now, that's a lot of fun to say. Let's just all try it together. Here, just try it. Epistemological plurality. Okay, let's try it all together now. You've practiced a little bit, and like I say, it's just fun to say. One, two, three. Epistemological plurality. Here's all that means. It means that there's a whole set of new truths being unveiled. The church believes that there's a whole new set of truths being unveiled. Folks, that's heartbreaking. That is heartbreaking. I got an email this past week. I get a number of them. They're pastor's resources. In this one particular one that I got, it said that mainline denominations are reversing their stance on a number of subjects. Preachers from the pulpit are saying, I have preached certain ways about certain things, and now I'm telling you I was wrong, and I'm totally reversing how I have preached that forever. And they're talking about the things we just laid out, abortion and marriage and homosexuality. And the pulpits are saying, there's new revelation, there's new truth that's telling me that I have presented this all wrong. That's heartbreaking, and it's happening from the pulpit. Preachers are saying this stuff, and I think, how in the world can the preacher say it? But then my very next thought is, where are the leaders of the church? Where are the elders of the church? Why are they allowing this to happen? Why are they allowing preachers to stand up and say, hey, I used to say that this was the truth of the Bible, but now I see it totally different, and it's no longer the truth of the Bible, even though it is written in black and white in God's Word. Where are the leaders of the church? I can promise you this, and I know it beyond the shadow of any doubt. If I were to do that, if I were to stand up here and tell you that there are certain things that the Bible says is one way, but really that's not what it means, and I started to twist it, I'd be fired faster than you could imagine, and I should be. I should be. The elders would have me in the woodshed so fast, it would make everybody's head spin. And there'd be boxes in my office, and there'd be boxes on our deck, and they would say, pack up and get out of here. And that's exactly the way it should be, because that's the role of the leaders of the church. You want to know what the iron chariot is for a lot of them? Well, if we do that, half of our congregation will leave. If we do that, people won't be in the church. Okay, that's all right. If half of the people leave the church because they hear truth, that's all right. Because the pulpit, the church, has to stand for truth. And if the church doesn't stand for it, then the iron chariots are going to roll right over the top of the rest of us. That's exactly the way it works. So the church has to say, these iron chariots are nothing for God. I want to show you a passage of scripture from the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, that every believer should be armed with. Every Christian should be armed with this. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8. Very simple verse. You can memorize this verse. Just make sure you get the reference down with it so that when somebody says to you, where where is that at in the Bible? You will be able to direct them very quickly. There are a whole lot of misquotations from the Bible that are thrown out, and without a reference... Nobody can ever go back and and verify it. Hebrews 13, verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Now let me read that for you one more time, and I just want to hear your response. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Memorize that verse, highlight that verse, underline that verse. And when you come up against epistemological plurality... And it's all around us. 
you remember that as truth. And you put it forward as truth. If God said it then, he means it now. And he has never changed his mind. God does not change his mind. Even in the face of iron chariots. So what about determined enemies? You ever come up against a determined enemy? Those are enemies of that are placed in front of you by the devil himself, determined enemies that refuse to leave. They refuse to leave. They don't want to go. So if you follow the pattern of the Israelites, you simply throw your hands up in the air and you say, well, okay, you can live here. Let's just make an agreement, a covenant, so that we can coexist. Happens all the time. Let me show you what some of the determined enemies look like in a person's life. Just like iron chariots, we have those in our individual lives. It's not just nationally. It's not just the church. Individuals have iron chariots. We also have determined enemies. Nationally, we have determined enemies. As a church, we have determined enemies. And individually, we have determined enemies. Here's a list of some of them in individual lives. Tammy grew up very quiet, very shy. She didn't have very many friends as a kid. As a result of that, as an adult, she's willing to follow anyone that will lead. It doesn't matter to her where they go. If they want to spend time with her, Tammy will spend time with them, even in destructive relationships. Happens all the time. Velma has a determined enemy in her life. It's called negativity. Her mind goes to the negative long before it ever sees the positive. She could see 10 negatives before she sees one positive. It's a determined enemy in her life. Shane has one in his life as well. He will fight to the death even when he knows he's wrong. And if you ask him why he does that, he'll simply tell you because I hate to lose. That's a determined enemy in his life. Even if he's wrong, he will keep on swinging. Deborah has one kind of like that. Deborah will fight before she will listen. Her first reaction is always to fight before she listens. Even without all the information, she builds her arsenal for the war and she goes to war. It's just how she's always done it. Jason has a determined enemy in his life of lying. He lies all the time to overshadow some shortcomings that he perceives in his own life. So he just lies. It's become a determined enemy for him. Brittany has one as well. Brittany's is tough. She chases the affection of men because she grew up without a father. And she's not afraid to say she does it. Abe has a determined enemy as well. He never spoke up as a kid, never had any self-confidence, was never willing to share his opinions or his thoughts or his feelings. He just keeps them all to himself. And now as an adult, he seldom ever says anything. And he gets run over, over and over and over again. Ben has an interesting determined enemy in his life. He has no filter on his mouth. Nobody ever told Ben that it is okay to have an unexpressed thought. If he thinks it, he says it. Always willing to share it. When Ben's confronted on that, this is his answer. I grew up back east. That's just the way I am. And a lot of the people with determined enemies in their lives that have taken up housekeeping and and set up all kinds of different places to live, like in the head and the heart and the soul of people, use that exact same expression, that's just the way I am. Folks, do you know what that expression really means? It means that you have made an agreement with determined enemies. When we say that's just the way I am, you have made agreements, covenants, with determined enemies, and you've allowed them to live in your land. You've allowed them to live in your life. 
The question that Christianity has to ask is this, but what about Jesus? What is Jesus doing in your life? If that's just the way you are and that's the way you've always been, what about Jesus? Because you see, Jesus transforms those things. Jesus deals with the determined enemies. He changes them. For so many people, we have made Christianity only about heaven, only about eternal life, and we forget the fact that Jesus Christ came to transform lives. And he wants to deal with the determined enemies of our lives. He wants to deal with the iron chariots that are rolling over the top of us. He does it in unique ways, like taking us to places called Bochum that we might learn there. Let's go back to Judges chapter 2. There's some things that you need to see out of this. It begins with the actual meaning of this place. If you look at the word bokum in Judges chapter 2, there should be a footnote connotation in your Bible. Footnote connotations will take you down to the bottom of the page. Right after bokum, if there is a footnote connotation, you go down, look at the bottom of your page, this is what you'll read. Bokum means weeping. It was a place of great sadness. It was a place of great sorrow. Just like all of those that we listed in the beginning, from Ground Zero to Normandy to Pearl Harbor to Wounded Knee to Little Bighorn, on and on and on the list goes, all the way to the couch. Bochum is a place of weeping, a place of great sadness. Now you might think, gosh, Phil, that's kind of depressing. What's going on with that? Well, you have to understand that God sees sadness differently than we do. I want to take you to the New Testament, the book of 2 Corinthians. Keep your finger there in Judges chapter 2. But go with me to the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 7. We're going to start in verse 8. Paul writes, Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did for a while. I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended and so we're not harmed in any way by us. Now, verse 10, this is great teaching. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. That is great teaching. God takes his people to places like Bochum that we might get sad for a time and see our own actions so that we can look back and see how we got there, that we might repent of those actions and change things. Godly sorrow leads to repentance, which leads to life. Worldly sorrow just leads to death. So when God takes you to Bochum, he does it for a reason. When he took the Israelites there, the Hebrew people there, he did it for a reason, because he wanted them to see what his reaction was to how they handled the iron chariots and the determined enemies. God does have a reaction. Now, before we get there, I want us to hang up still in 2 Corinthians, but this time we're going to go to chapter 5, verse 17. And this is the, the anchor point of this whole message. You've got to see this. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Bochum is a reminder of that. Even in that godly sorrow, we can be reminded that in Christ, we are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come, which means this, iron chariots can fall. 
and determined enemies can be driven out. All those things that have defined us in the past can be left behind. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. And a lot of that is based on God's reaction in Bochum situations. We're back now in Judges chapter 2, verse 3. Now, therefore, I tell you that I is extremely significant. If you jump back up to verse 1, you'll see that the angel of the Lord is speaking. Anytime you find the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, that is the pre-incarnate Christ. So this is Jesus himself speaking. Jesus is speaking. Now, therefore, I tell you that I will not drive them out before you. They will be thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a snare to you. Three things. These are the reactions of God the reactions of Jesus to the unfaithfulness of the Hebrew people. God's response was, I will no longer drive the enemies out before you. They will cause you great pain. They will be a thorn in your side. And the third one, their gods will be a trap to you. They will be a snare to you. Now let's pick each one of those apart because they're extremely significant. Remember, up to this point, God was driving the enemies of Israel out ahead of them. All they had to do was be faithful. And now God says, I will no longer do that for you. I will not drive them out ahead of you. And that has been true since this point all the way up to today. God no longer drives our enemies out for us. But listen to this. He does it with us. God no longer drives our enemies out for us. He does it with us. And that is evident all through the Bible. When God says, I will come alongside you and we will do this together, amazing things happen. We have access to the very power of God himself. God says, I won't do it for you, but I'll do it with you. So let's get busy. Now let me show you what I'm talking about. We're going to go back to the New Testament, Philippians chapter 3. This is the Apostle Paul writing these words, and he talks about the determined enemies of his life. Philippians chapter 3, picking up in the last half of verse 4. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Now, if you know anything at all about the Apostle Paul, you know that he was quite arrogant. Go back and read the book of Acts. He was very cocky. He was very arrogant in the early days of his faith, and especially prior to Jesus. I always describe him this way. He was like the speaker of the house of Israel. He had great power. He was a Pharisee. He was a rabbi. People came to him for answers. When the church began to grow in prominence and power and significance, Paul was the main persecutor of it. All the way down the line to actually killing Christians to try to stop the church. The account of him being there when Stephen was martyred is laid out right in Acts chapter 7 and 8. You can go back and read it. Paul was right there. And now he says, all of that is gone within him. All of that has been taken away. 
The Lord has dealt with every bit of it. Those were the determined enemies of his life. Arrogance, cockiness, piety. Those were the determined enemies that defined who he was. But through the power of Jesus Christ, it was changed. Now that had to happen with Jesus right beside him. God didn't do all of that for him. Paul did it alongside Christ. You want to know how I know that? Listen to Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. Paul writes, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. There are some translations of the Bible that say all things are possible through him who gives us strength. Now that doesn't say that God can do everything for us. It says I can do all things. And God does it right beside me. With the exception of salvation, my friends, that's exactly the way it is in Christ. And you could even argue that salvation has some of that same philosophy. You see, God did all of the heavy lifting for salvation. He put his son on the cross. He stretched him out for us. Jesus did all of that for us. He shed his blood and he died on the cross. God said a sacrifice is called for. Jesus said, I will be that sacrifice. And he died on our behalf that we might have an intimate, close relationship with God. Jesus did all of it. All we have to do is accept him. Now, the Bible would teach that we have to believe that we have to confess, that we have to repent, and that we need to be baptized. So you could even say that at the point of salvation, God's still doing the really hard work, but he's doing it right beside us because we still have to do certain things. Carry that idea into dealing with the determined enemies of your life. God isn't going to drive them out, but he's going to come right beside you to deal with it. God's going to come right beside you to deal with it. That's the way it started in salvation, and it goes all the way through to all the determined enemies. You identify them. You figure out which enemies are determined to stay in your heart and your mind and your soul, and then you trust God to deal with them. And there's an interesting way to do that. It's found in the book of 1 John. Let me take you there real quick. 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in us. Now there's an extremely interesting word in the passage that we just read. It shows up three times, a little tiny word, just two letters. The word if. The first time that we find it and the third time that we find it, those are God's ifs. But the second time, right in the middle when we find it, that's our if. John writes, if we will confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That if hinges on our willingness to confess our sins, to deal with the determined enemies of our lives. That's our if. The other two ifs are God's, and he'll do with those what God can do all by himself, but he wants us to get our if in the game. Does that make sense? That's God saying, I won't do it for you, but I'll do it with you. You make sure that you do your part and I'll take care of the other parts. And you could even look at it like this. All you have to do is a third of it. God will take care of two thirds. He's got the majority. He'll take care of it. That's pretty God-sized. He'll do two thirds of the work. You do a third of it and everything will get taken care of. Now, usually when we read this passage, we apply it only to the idea of sin. If we will confess our sins, and we think of all the big sins, I'll just lay out my sins one by one before I go to bed at night. But what if you were to apply it to the determined enemies of your life? What if married couples would say, 
long time ago, we made an agreement that we would fight all the time, that we would selfishly make our way through this marriage, never looking at the other person. And that becomes a determined enemy or became a determined enemy for us. We want to confess that to the Lord, that he might transform it and change it. You see, you've already done your part. You've confessed, you've acknowledged the determined enemy, and you've said, I want it changed. And then God comes alongside you, and he deals with it. What if we were to do that with all the different determined enemies of our life? What if the person that has wrestled with self-esteem issues would confess that to the Lord? Lord, I don't see any value or purpose in my life. And that enemy speaks to me all the time. Imagine what God does to that enemy. He drives it out of the land and you're right there beside him. What about all the spiritual battles that we come up against? Lord, sometimes I wrestle with, and you plug in whatever it is. Sometimes I wrestle with this, or this, or this, or this, and they've become determined enemies in my life. Look at what God could do with them. If we just do our part, if we utilize our if, confess those things before the Lord. He is faithful and just, and he'll deal with them. He's got two-thirds of the battle. You only have one-third. You just do your part. Well, back in Judges chapter 2, we learn that it isn't just a matter of God not driving these enemies out in front of us. God also went on to say to the Hebrew people that these enemies that you have dealt with, they are always going to be a thorn in your flesh. They're going to cause a lot of pain for you. You're going to have to deal with them forever. They're just going to be there. So be aware of it. Acknowledge the fact that it is true. And always watch out for it. Because they're there. They're a thorn in your flesh. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you are fully aware of how this happens. You have got yourself into a hamster wheel of of victory and then failure and then victory and then failure and victory and then failure. The Apostle Paul would say, why do I do the things that I do not want to do? For the things I do not want to do, I do. But the things I do not want to do, or the things I do, I do not want to do. It's called the doo-doo passage. It's a great passage of Scripture. Really love that. Paul even understood exactly what it's like for us, this hamster wheel. That's because we have a thorn in the flesh. We have something that we have to deal with all the time. So here's the way that you handle it. You close the door on that determined enemy so that he's no longer a thorn in your flesh, so that it is no longer a thorn in your flesh. Then you lock the door, and then here's the best part. You give the keys to Jesus. You close the door, You lock the door, and you give the keys to Jesus. More often than not, here's what happens. People will come to Jesus looking for help. Happens all the time in the church. I see it all the time. Deanie sees it all the time. Our prayer room sees it all the time. The elders see it all the time as they're talking with people and praying with people. They'll come in the midst of crisis looking for some help, and they'll find Jesus, and they'll find the help that he offers, the help that he provides. But then, after they've experienced a little bit of victory... They open the door back up. In Christ, they close the door. But then they open it back up, and the hamster wheel starts to spin. And they get right back into the same cycle. Victory, failure, victory, failure, victory, failure. Because they never locked the door. And some people will actually go so far as to close the door in Christ and lock the door, but then they'll get bold. And they'll think, okay, I've, I've experienced some victory, and so now it's okay for me to open the door again. I want to just use this illustration. That's all this is, is an illustration. I want you to think about the alcoholic that has seen their life ruined by alcohol. 
They have made some horrible choices, and they have allowed that to govern their life, always looking for hope. Same thing happens with drug addicts or with gamblers or any types of addictions. When people cry out to Christ, they say, I want to close the door, and Jesus is there to help do that. They're able to close the door. So the alcoholic is able to say, okay, I'm never going to drink again because I've seen the effects of that in my life. Which, by the way, I'm going to say this, and it'll sound strange coming from a preacher. The Bible does not ever say, the Bible never says, thou shalt not drink a beer. The Bible does not say, thou shalt not drink. The Bible says, don't become drunk on wine. That's exactly what the Bible says. And for some people, it is okay to drink a beer, but for the alcoholic, it isn't. The door is closed. For the alcoholic, it isn't just closed, it needs to be locked. But what happens is the alcoholic says, okay, I've experienced some victory. I've made my way this far into this. It's okay now for me to drink a beer. So they open the door back up, and the wheel spins, and off they go. Because it was never okay for him to do it in the first place. So if you get the door closed, my friends, lock the door, and then here's the best part. Give the keys to Jesus. Don't even hold on to them. Give the keys to Jesus. And you might say, how do I do that? I'm glad you asked. Let's go to the book of 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this reason, now here's the key, for this reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind, has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's how you give the keys to Jesus. It's an increasing, growing relationship with him. And the Bible tells you exactly how to do it. You keep adding things to your faith. You keep growing in this walk, and the Lord has the keys. When you stop growing, you take the keys back. And more often than not, the door gets opened to these things that will be a thorn in your flesh forever. God said it's going to be there as a reminder to always grow with him. That's the whole point of Bochum. You remember where you've come from that you might always grow closer to the Lord. But interestingly enough, the third thing that Jesus said to the Hebrew people back in Judges chapter 2 was that the false gods, the false gods were always going to be a trap to them, a snare. They were always going to be there, and they needed to pay attention. They needed to watch out for them. And it is still true today, my friends. There are false gods all around us. I want to take you to one last passage as we wrap this up. Matthew chapter 4. This is a familiar passage of Scripture to many of you. Verse 1. Matthew 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
Then the devil took him to the holy city and, lay, and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and splendor, all, uh, I'm sorry, all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said. If you will bow down and worship me, Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord, your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. When we read that passage, a lot of times we'll think to ourselves, that's just random temptations that the devil put in front of Jesus. They're not in his humanity. Those were real struggles that Jesus had to face. They weren't random. They weren't just pulled out of a hat by the devil. They were significant in Jesus life and Satan knew it. So he put some false gods in front of him. Did you see how Jesus responded every time? Every time. He responded with the word of God. Every time. As he faced false gods around him, this idea of money and power and his own personal salvation, false gods, Jesus responded with the word of God. And it still works. When we face false gods, which are oftentimes determined enemies in our lives, the word of God still speaks. I'll illustrate it for you. Friday afternoon after Karen Foss's service, Dick and I were standing right here, just right here. Basically, everybody else was gone. We were loading up the flowers so that they could take them home, and Dick and I were talking about the events of the day and things that had happened, but more importantly, we were talking about the events of the week after Karen had passed away. They'd been married 42 years, known each other for nearly 50. They were school sweethearts, not even high school sweethearts. It went back before that. They'd known each other a long time and had loved each other a long time. And Dick, of course, was wrestling with all the issues of loss. Some of you in here know exactly what that feels like. As we were talking about it, Dick didn't give me permission to share this, but I know he would be okay with it. As we were talking about it, this is what Dick said to me. All week long, I have been exploring my Bible for every passage on heaven because I want to know where Karen's at and I want to know where I'm going. That's a great response. As the devil was trying to make agreements with him in aloneness and loneliness, Dick opened up the word of God. That's where he went. And it still works that way. When we come up against determined enemies, that's exactly what we should do. Open up the Bible and you can silence the voices of all the false gods and you can get off the hamster wheel. Wayne Carlson needed to learn that a long time before he did, if he ever did. Wayne grew up like a lot of those folks we listed earlier on. He just had a a tough background that he had to try to overcome. And at 18 years old, he surrendered to it. He was arrested for Grand Theft Auto in the nation of Canada. And he was sentenced to go to jail for one year because it was his first offense because he'd never been caught before really is what it boiled down to. So they sentenced him to one year in prison. He went to the penitentiary and very quickly realized that he did not want to be there, that it was no place that he wanted to spend any more time than he had to. So he set in motion some different ideas that he had about escaping from prison and he pulled it off. He did not finish his first year. He escaped, got away got caught, got sent back to prison. This time with a longer sentence. 
And he thought very quickly, I do not want to be here. This is not a place for me. I am not going to stay here one minute longer than I have to. So he said into motion ideas about how to escape. And he escaped. And he got caught. And he got sent back with a longer sentence. Wayne Carlson did that 13 times. He got caught and sent back to jail 13 times. Finally, after 30 years, he got out of jail. His one-year sentence turned into 30 years behind bars because he just kept doing the same thing over and over and over again. Do you know what the definition of insanity is? It's doing the same thing over and over and over again, expecting different results. That's the definition of insanity. Sin drives us to that. And if we're not careful, we can get into the same pattern that Wayne Carlson did. But God gives us places like Bochum that remind us to break the pattern. Places of sadness and sorrow, godly sorrow that drives us to repentance that we might grow closer to the Lord and break the whole pattern. It's a good thing when we do because Jesus transforms our lives. It's interesting when you read the three things that the Lord said he would not do. I will not drive the enemies out ahead of you. They will be a thorn in your flesh. They're going to cause some pain. And there will be false gods around you all the time that will set traps and snares for you. God did that, that we might understand what it means to love him and to draw near to him and to live with him. It's a good place to be. Why don't you stand and pray with me? Father in heaven, everything we've talked about are very real struggles for every one of us. There is nobody in this room that has not at some point in their life faced iron chariots and determined enemies. They're around us all the time. Lord, I want to thank you today for granting us the victory. But I also want to thank you for involving us in the victory. Not just doing it for us, but doing it with us. Lord, help us hold on to that truth. Help us remember it. And then, Father, I pray that as we face off against the iron chariots and the determined enemies and we experience the victory, that we'll give you credit for it. And we'll give you the glory for it. Because you deserve it. Thank you for loving us and giving us the chance to love you in return. In Jesus' name, amen.